Welcome to Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. I'm your host, Russ Roberts of Stanford University's Hoover Institution. Our website is econtalk.org, where you can subscribe, comment on this podcast, and find links and other information related to today's conversation. You'll also find our archives where you can listen to every episode we've ever done going back to 2006. Our email address is mail at econtalk.org. We'd love to hear from you. Today is May 31st, 2013, and my guest is Michael Munger of Duke University, where he is a professor of political science, economics, public policy, and the director of the philosophy, politics, and economics program at Duke. He blogs at Kids Prefer Cheese, and today will mark his 23rd appearance as a guest on EconTalk. Mike, welcome back. It's always so great. You know, it's May 31st. I, I just want to mention before we get started that what we're going to talk about is it looks like we're going to be talking about sports, uh, but we are going to be talking about a more general set of economic principles and insights related to institutions, incentives, uh, unintended consequences. But I just thought I'd mention that both of our baseball teams are in first place this morning. Uh, the all is right with the world. I was I, Actually, ironic you say that. I was going to introduce with God's in his heaven, all's right with the world, uh, <laughs> which is Browning for those of you um, – interested at home. Uh, but uh, they are both the Red Sox, my team, and the Cardinals. Uh, Mike's team are both in first place. Uh, your team will probably stay in first place. Mine probably won't, but let's enjoy it while we can. I'm enjoying it, absolutely. So what do you want to talk about today? Well, I have become more and more interested, maybe because I'm in a political science department, but I'm, I've become more and more interested in the subject that James Buchanan had became more interested in towards the, the end of his career, and that is how do groups of people accomplish the creation of value through exchange in non-market kinds of settings? Now, there, you know, markets are, are still at work, but it's, it's not direct exchange. We have to work as a group or team, and obviously that's the connection to sports, um, but teams play against each other. And it turns out, and I've, I've been thinking about this for a little while now, the, the set of institutions and the set of formal rules, so the, the distinction that Hayek made between law and legislation, those two things may be very different, and yet everyone is aware of their interplay. So I wanted to talk about where do those things come from, why do they survive, and why are they so different in different sports? And why don't you start by talking about that law and legislation distinction of Hayek. Well, the the thing that that Hayek uh, pointed out a number of places, but he pointed it out um, really quite clearly in the 1945 uh, paper on uh, information. Use in knowledge in society. Yeah, he said we make constant use of formulas, symbols, and rules whose meaning we do not understand, and through the use of which we avail ourselves of the assistance of knowledge, which individually we do not possess. We've developed these practices and institutions by building upon habits and institutions which have proved successful in their own sphere. And that's so, what he considers law. That, that's what he considers to be the, the laws that we have come up with over time that we use to create value or that we use to protect ourselves from injury. And legislation is formal rules. Those are things that legislatures come up with. And in the case of our analogy to sports, those are the rules you would get by looking at the rule book. Now, there's always an interaction, and I think there's a third. Let me propose that there's a third, and that's equipment. There's an interaction between these three things. So the equipment that we use to protect ourselves from injury, the set of formal rules, and then the set of informal rules that may be more important that Hayek would call laws all interact together. And if you change any one of them, um, it's difficult to change the law. It's difficult to change what some people call the code. And in fact, there's an interesting series of three books by a man named Ross Bernstein about um, football, hockey, and baseball. And the title of all three of them is The Code, but it's about each of the, each of the three sports. Those may be the more important rules. The unwritten so if rules. You yeah, the, the unwritten but really important rules that all the players are sort of inculcated into. And if a young player acts badly, somebody will take him aside and say, look, you can't do that. You're violating the code. They may even use those words. So if you try to change equipment, 
or you try to change the formal rules, there's probably going to be an adjustment in the informal rules or the law, and it may have unintended consequences. So the interaction between those three things, I think, determine the way different sports have different sets of, if, if you ask people what constitutes correct behavior, what's the code that you as a player live by, they're really dramatically different in ways that are surprising. And the code is an example, or these unwritten rules are, are an example of emergent order that no one controls. And as you pointed out a minute ago, they're very hard to change, but they do change. They don't just, but they don't change at someone's beck and call. So yep. there are a lot yep. of norms and rules in baseball, uh, the code that are different today, I think, than they were in 1940 or 1960. But if you said, oh, I want to go back to that, <laughs> you couldn't. Yeah. And they, yeah, you, you, it, part of the changes is in equipment and part of the changes in the formal rules, but part of the change is also the amount of value that's being created. And some of that is the, the people get paid more now. There's more television revenue. And so the cost of injuries has changed. But one of the things that got me thinking this way was Pete Leeson's book about pirates, because they also, and they even, they, they had the pirates code. And, and so we did a podcast movie, with Pete. Yep. And we'll put a link up to um, that. And, and I use this, I use this in, um, in, in class, the, the video segment where Captain Barbosa and Elizabeth Turner are talking and she's, she's negotiating, trying to use the code. And then finally he turns or he turns away. The bargain is made, and, and Elizabeth says, "Wait, you have to take me to, to the shore according to the code." And the captain interrupts her and says, first, your return to shore was not part of our negotiations nor our agreement, so I must do nothing. Secondly, you must be a pirate for the pirate's code to apply, and you are not. And third, the code is more what you'd call guidelines than actual rules. Welcome aboard the Black Peril, Miss Turner. It's a perfect statement of what Hayek means. These are guidelines in the sense that they're not formally enforced. But if you violate them, in a way, they're maybe even more powerful than the formal rules. If you violate the formal rules, the umpire assesses some sort of uh, – maybe you get thrown out. If you, you get, get caught. Uh, if you get caught. If you get caught. And, and maybe, you, maybe you have a, a suspension or a fine. If you violate the informal rules, it makes other people reassess – their notion of your character, of your reputation. And that's what these things turn on. All of the, the three sports that I looked at, and I actually think the most interesting one is hockey. Um, I, in, in thinking about this, the, maybe it's because I knew more about baseball and I, I sort of understood the code. So I, I think I'm, I'm hoping we can talk some about the hockey code today. What's interesting is you want to substitute damage for something else. And what, what, hockey in particular has done is honor and character there's this a uh, uh, a reputational hostage if you lose the sense that other people think you know he's a good guy he's a hockey guy you've lost something that's much more important than a fine or penalty minutes or anything that the former rules could take away from you well i mentioned the fact i i, I inserted that little if you get caught because yeah. Formal rules are monitored typically, not always, but typically by a small set of people appointed as the monitors. That would be the umpire, the referee, the policeman. Uh, in the case of norms and informal rules, they're monitored by lots of people and the costs are imprecise. You could get shunned, thrown out of the club implicitly. Uh, you can lose your reputation as you point out. And so it's a different both it's different both in how it's monitored and in the the costs of yeah. uh, of failure. And the 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 enforcement mechanism because everybody's watching and there's replays the umpires may not catch you. So you may not get caught by the formal rules. It it's a much the enforcement mechanism behind the informal rules or what Hayek would call the law I think is much more effective and that's part of the reason that it's so important particularly in hockey and baseball which are really dangerous sports. And so you, you have to control this aggression because there's the potential you'll be killed in, in hockey or in baseball. They're, they're very dangerous sports. So somehow you have to control that aggression and yet allow these teams to continue to create value. So let's, uh, let's talk about baseball first, if that's okay, and then we'll move we'll on to great. hockey and, 
and add some uh, – I have some football thoughts also. And then we'll apply uh-huh. it just for, for those listening. We're going to then try to apply it to a more wider set of uh, applications. That's great. So baseball. 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 The, there's a, a, an anecdote that I, I wanted to start with. Um, at the interaction between the formal and informal rules. And this is possibly apocryphal, but several people claim that you know, maybe it was like Woodstock. There's a million people that were among the 100,000 that were there, but people claim to, to have actually heard this. Um, Rogers Hornsby was a, a very famous uh, St. Louis Cardinal, by the way, not surprising I would bring that up, who had a very accurate batting eye and was one of the best hitters in the National League. I think he's and second all time. And uh, in batting which, which is, you know, maybe averages used to be higher, but part of the reason that he had such a high average was that he only swung at strikes. And everyone recognized that. And one of the themes we're going to come back to over and over again is that one of the informal rules is that the superstars may find the formal rules relaxed for them. So in the NBA, maybe you don't get a foul called. Maybe you don't get traveling called. On balls and strikes, if you're Rogers Hornsby, maybe you get a break. If you're uh, Sidney Crosby or Alexander Ovechkin in hockey and somebody cross-checks you, there's going to be trouble. You don't get to touch the superstars. Well, apparently there was a rookie pitcher, and um, he threw a ball, and it was clearly outside, and, and Rogers Hornsby took it. And then the, the rookie was kind of nervous, and he threw another pitch. It was even further outside. It was a ball and uh, Hornsby took it. Then he, he threw a pitch, the rookie pitcher threw a pitch, and it looked to him like it hit the outside corner. And the ump called it a ball. And the rookie pitcher said, hey, that, that hit the corner. And the umpire stepped out from behind the plate, took off his mask, and said, young man, when you throw a strike, Mr. Hornsby will let you know. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's spectacular. It's uh, a great, I, I did so not the, know that story. Well, the, the, the ump was actually complicit. That you, you, that this rookie needs to be told the actual rules. And so you, you don't worry about calling balls and strikes. Mr. Hornsby will do that. If he doesn't swing, it's obviously not a strike. It's not in the strike yeah. zone. He has earned this position of respect. People come to the ballpark to see him. Nobody's coming to see you, young man. Maybe someday <laughs> you'll, you'll get that same. Well, so the, you know, that position of respect and character it seems like an advantage to the individual, but it's actually an advantage to the team. You don't want balls and strikes called randomly on the superstars. You want to see them hit. Maybe they make an out. That's okay. Maybe um, a, a superstar in basketball uh, misses the shot, but you want to see him be able to take the shot without being hindered. And the, the, the hockey player, you want to see him be able to take it without being, without being hurt, cross-checked. So the, this norm that there are the superstars are protected by the informal rules often is actually internalized by the formal rules and the way that the umps, the referees, call the rules are actually going to be different. So the, there's a, a, a sort of seamless connection between the informal and the formal rules. And a, a good umpire recognizes that. And a good pitcher knows. He doesn't complain. He was actually showing the umpire up. Right. So, you know, my favorite example of this, and I think it's interesting how it's changed in response to the point you made earlier about increased value, is that in the old days, uh, if one of your players got hit by a pitch ball, uh, your pitcher was duty-bound <clears throat> to retaliate. Depends how it was hit, but in general, if it was thought to be intentional, sometimes even if it wasn't, was duty-bound to retaliate against, I think the rule was, a, compar- a player of comparable ability. So yep. if, if your superstar in baseball got hit by a pitch, particularly after he hit a home run in a previous at bat, the other the other pitcher would hit their superstar when he came up. And usually yep. in the old days, sometimes they'd hit him in the head. T- today, it's generally that you try to hit him in the middle of the back <laughs> the, or, the, yep. or the, the fleshy part of the arm uh, to the extent there's yep. a fleshy part on a major league baseball player these days. But that code, interestingly to me, is somewhat diminished. Hitting a player is now a much more dramatic statement than it was 30 years ago because, as you said, it could end a career. It could kill you. It's happened once. Uh, Ray Chapman was killed by a pitch ball by by Carl Mays. That was pre-helmet. But uh, Tony Canigliera was hurt very, very badly by a pitch ball in uh, 1967. 
So it's – and it may have contributed to his death. It's um, it's an incredibly dangerous thing, a, a very hard object going up to 100-something miles an hour. And that norm has changed somewhat. And the other point I want to make, and then you can comment, is what I find fascinating is that generally, not always, the manager of the team that retaliates pretends it was not retaliation and everyone inside the park, everyone inside the clubhouse knows that it was. That's part of the code. You have to say it was unintentional. And in fact, even the pitcher who threw it, and everybody knows, has to say, yeah, it just got away from me, even though no one's confused about the real reason that it happened. Let's let's think about the Ray Chapman example for just a minute, because it's really interesting. There were three things at work there. One is, and this was in 1920, I think. It's, the, I think so. Um, it was in the 20s, you know, for sure. Um, they didn't wear helmets, and in fact... People really didn't wear helmets until 1970. It wasn't universal until 1970. And even then, they wore those little things that had a, a flap uh, so rather than a, a, a full batting helmet. But also before then, there had been no rule about doctoring the baseball. And so as soon as the pitcher got it, he would put grease, uh, blacken it, maybe cut it with a ring. So the, the baseball would spit on it. So it was all lumpy. So there were two formal rules changes that followed immediately, and this, you know, because we're interested in the interaction between the code and formal rules. Two things were outlawed. One was you couldn't darken or soften the baseball. You couldn't do anything to damage the the outside of the baseball. That was done within a month of Ray Chapman being hit. And the following year, they outlawed a spitball. That is, you couldn't take saliva and put it on the ball. Although. Interestingly, it was grandfathered. So people who had thrown the spitball before were allowed to throw the spitball for the rest of their career, which is a fascinating rule change. So unless you had thrown the the spitball before that, you couldn't. But other people, you know, that's what their career, that's what value depended on. You can continue to do it. So there were two formal rules changes to try to make it safer, but not a helmet. So part of the reason is that there was an idea that if you wore a helmet, and you can see the extensions of this now, if you wore a helmet, you were somehow protected from retaliation, and that would actually make the game more violent. They were worried that being protected from the retaliation that meant, made the game relatively safe, because I would be hurt if I hurt someone else. If I'm protected against that, then I would just be free to do it. So the, the, those, rules, those rule changes about Chapman put us in the position that we're in now, which is it's much less acceptable for the pitcher to hit a batter. The question is why? Well, the value that people have of uh, the value that most players have, they, they, they have very large salaries, you have very large television revenues, umpires now try to go out of their way to ensure that if they think a pitcher has thrown a ball, they'll, they'll throw him out of the game. So that this is a, a formal rules change where they're trying to compensate for the fact that it's less acceptable to use what used to be the code of retaliation. And what's the difference? The answer is batters charge the mound now. That was completely unacceptable in the 20s, 30s, and 40s. You got hit, just go down to first base unless you couldn't move and then be carried away on a stretcher. Yeah, no ice you, is what they call out <laughs> in my kids' games. When somebody yeah, gets no hit. Ice, the, don't rub that. Yeah. <laughs> well, if you charged the mound, that meant you were giving up. And what, I think one of the most interesting ones was uh, interesting examples of this recently. Rather than charging the mound, Tory Hunter famously picked up the ball and threw it back and, and hit the, the pitcher, Baez. So he got hit by Tory Hunter got hit by the pitch. He picks it up and, and throws it back and hits the pitcher with it. Uh, so the batters have said we don't we, we will not accept the, the, what used to be the code because there's too much of a chance that we'll be injured. And the re, I think the reason is the the amount of salaries that batters earn now what what they would give up by being hit and actually injured has changed. So from in economic terms, a change in relative prices. That is a change in the harm that's done by being hit and injured. Even when you're wearing a helmet, and a lot of a lot of guys wear armor. They, they they wear something on their elbow. They wear something on their leg to try to protect themselves from being injured. There's still a change in relative prices, and now umpires are in the position of having to legislate. 
That is, they have to decide what happened. Whereas before, you're right. Um, if, if the superstar got hit, we would just assume that it was on purpose. And if the guy was wild, well, that's tough on you because you still have to pay the penalty. Now, since batters charge the mound, and we'll, the, 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 the problem is, like um, the, recently uh, several pitchers got hurt. One got a broken collarbone uh, as a result of a batter charging the mound. We can't have pitchers injured. So if a pitcher throws at a batter, the batter charges the mound, the pitcher gets injured, that means we're losing value. So we, we, we're, we're, we're searching for a new equilibrium. That code broke down because of the change in relative prices. Now we're trying to do something else. It's not clear what's going to happen. And you and I talked a bit when I, from a blog post that I did. Pittsburgh pitcher uh, gives up a home run to then, again, happened to be the Cardinals. Second batter for the Cardinals hits another home run. The third batter hits a single. The pitcher's pretty unhappy by this time. And the pitcher throws a ball and hits Alan Craig, the number four hitter, uh, you know, number four batter is an important guy for the Cardinals. The ump immediately throws the pitcher out. And th- it wasn't retaliation. He just said, I think it was on purpose. Now, the guy had been kind of wild. But the code is broken down. We're substituting legislation for law. And it'll be interesting to see what new happens. So uh, let's talk about hockey. What goes on in hockey that you find interesting? Well, well, for one thing, I, you make the observation in a blog post you did before this podcast that that there's that's bizarre. You know, I never really thought about it. There's fighting in hockey, and there's fighting in baseball, and there's really no fighting. It's very, very rare that there's fighting in basketball and football. Now, people, you might think, well, what do you mean? There's no fighting in baseball, but periodically there is over the issue of a hit batsman. There is a this bizarre ritual where both teams sort of storm the mound, uh, storm the the field, and engage with each other. They usually there's a mock violence to it. Usually nobody gets hurt. If they do get hurt, it's because at their bottom of a pile. It's a lot of wrestling. Whereas yeah. in hockey, there's actually punches, literally punches thrown. It's one reason I don't yeah. particularly like hockey. And talk about why. Before you get any other details about hockey, talk about the role of fighting in those two sports and why it's missing in the other ones. Well, you have made an interesting observation, so let me take a step back and say in evolutionary biology, one of the observations that uh, biologists have made is that fighting is expensive in the sense that if two males are fighting over mating rights or territorial rights, then if they get hurt, they lose because they can't possibly reproduce. And so there's a lot of fighting that's highly ritualized, that, that, that's really uh, stylized, not quite fighting. So there, there are flies that walk up to each other, and their eyes are on stalks. And the one that has the longer eye stalks wins. The other one just leaves. And the one with the longer eye stalks, he gets mating opportunities for uh, the big horned ungulates, deer, uh, sheep, uh, rams, the 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 large uh, sheep that, that hit each other with, with their horns that smack heads, well, they're damaged a little bit, but it's not the same as really be, as, as fighting. And yeah, they, they, they don't do as well on their SAT exams, but they don't. Well, they, they, but they, they, their lifespans they, aren't they, affected. They get mating opportunities. They, they win. So the value is created by this because the, genetically, the relatively stronger group the relatively stronger male um, is the one who's going to produce offspring. Now, he may not live very long, but he produces more. So what's interesting, I think, about baseball is how stylized the fighting is. It's understood that the entire team has to run out. And, and, and the, the bullpen, you, the pitchers in the bullpen are usually sprinting because they, yeah. they want to show that they're committed. Cause they're farther away they, from the, the mound area where the fight usually takes place. So they're usually seen sprinting from the – what they should, by the way, do, by the way, is sprint over to the other uh, bullpen. And they should have some ritual <laughs> with the other bullpen pitchers, but they don't. Yeah. Both bullpens no. sprint toward the mound. Uh, because you want to protect your player. You want to show team solidarity. And so I, I found a, a video, and we'll, I'll send the, the link. There was a Korean baseball game. And I it watched was a, it, Mike. It was I, th- a, I thought it was a Monty Python uh, skit for it, a minute, and it's quite extraordinary. It a, I couldn't – I really it, was amazed it, by it. It was a charity game. Well, but they, they're making fun of the fact that baseball fights are so stylized. And so the, the batter gets hit, 
and he charges the mound, and as soon as he gets to the mound, he does what the Korean version of, of chicken fighting. You pick up one of your feet with, and hold it with your hand to your waist and jump and try to ram the other guy with your knee, and the one who falls over is the loser. And it, you know, nobody gets hurt. Uh, baseball fighting isn't that different from that. A, a no, friend of correct. mine, a guy, well, a guy I know pretty well is uh, Jim Bouton, the author of Ball Four. I've had him in several times for talks, and he talks about this in Ball Four, and I, I talked to him about it at dinner. Former New uh, York he Yankee. He, he, he was a, a former, but, but then Seattle pilot. Yes. Uh, so t- t- to be fair, and then finally a, a, a Houston Astro. So he, he'd, he'd moved around a bit. He loved baseball fights. It was his favorite thing. He usually had a friend on the other team, they would run off, and they would get fairly fairly far from the main pile, and they would pretend to punch each other for a minute, and they'd be giggling. And, you know, how's the wife? We've got to get together. They would hang on, and the, the umps would come over and yell at them because they didn't want to break up the main fight. They might get hurt. And so the, the umps would come over and, and yell at uh, Bouton and Pepitone, who were basically waltzing out by second base. So everybody understood that it's highly stylized. But, it, but if you stayed in the dugout, you would be shunned. If you said, you know, this is silly, I'm not going to do this. That would be a t- that actually would be an outrage. You might get into a real fight with a teammate if you did that. So baseball fights sometimes there are real fights, and with a, I, I give the, of, an example of, of, of a famous real fight that I think Ray Knight started because I can't stand Ray Knight. But the the idea of fighting in baseball is as a way of preventing people from showing you up. From disrespecting you, and from insu- and to ensure that the other team doesn't get to harm your best players. So, still, sometimes in baseball there are fights which, if they happened at a bar, would result in people being arrested. So, why is it that baseball allows something which, if it happened outside of a baseball stadium, would actually be criminal? And that's what brings us to hockey, is because it happens almost every night. In some years, half of the, in in fact, during the 90s, there were were times when the average fights per game were one. There was actually a fight almost every night in every hockey game. And there have been a lot of calls to outlaw it. And I I found a quote from uh, Gordy Howe, who was a famous hockey player and a very famous uh, fighter, who said, if you get rid of fighting, you're going to have more dirty play and injuries. Let them fight and get rid of all the stick work. So the difference is in hockey, well, to make baseball like hockey, you'd have to have all nine defensive players in the infield. And instead of gloves, they would have bats. And as the guy tries to run around the bases, they'd be whacking at him with bats, which would change the game a lot. I'm, yes, I'm pretty yes, sure of it. <laughs> well, so the, the, you have to have the, – the referees can't possibly see – all of the times when I take the handle of my stick and I jam it into your ribs and break your ribs, or I jam it into your cheekbone and break the orbital of your eye. Or flick it across your cheek um, and slice it open. I mean, I think, again, for non-serious hockey fans or hockey, certainly those of us who don't play hockey, don't realize what an incredibly dangerous uh, sport it is, played at incredible high speeds with um, tremendous potential for for brutal injury. They're, They're so big. The players are so big, they're so fast, they're they're on ice skates, and they have a very large, razors. very yeah, <laughs> right. they're, they're very, razors very, on their feet and razors, and the, the the stick is extremely sharp. Baseball players have to face a hundred mile an hour rock, and they have spikes. So a lot of times, when you slide into second, if you're not careful, uh, you could certainly hurt somebody very badly. So the the baseball and hockey are fundamentally dangerous. And not just in ways that are obvious to a referee. And I think that's why fighting is allowed in those two sports and not in the others. The others are dangerous, but the referees can control the amount of violence to a much greater extent. And so you don't have to have the institution of fighting to allow the the teams to protect themselves. And what's interesting is that hockey players don't say, we need fighting to, uh, you know, because we're macho guys. We need fighting in order to reduce the amount of violence. It seems paradoxical until you understand that over time, this Hayekian law has come about, this very complicated code. And what's happened in hockey 
is there's a, a, a set of rules which if I violate them, I'm going to be challenged by the other team's goon or enforcer. And the, the enforcer, there, there are a, a number of very famous in, enforcers who are enormous people uh, who specialize in fighting. Some of them certainly scored some goals, but the, 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 the idea of an enforcer, I guess the closest in baseball would be a pitcher like maybe Rob Dibble, who was understood to be a headhunter. So he was one of the nasty boys who pitched for Cincinnati. And um, if, if you remember Rob Dibble, the, everybody the, said he always pitched inside. He hit a lot of guys. I, I looked it up. How many people did Rob Dibble hit in his entire 15-year career? And the answer is 12. He hit 12 was, batters he, total. He, but he threw very hard. He was very well, scary. He, he was big, too. He's very tall. Very big, very intimidating, and he threw the ball inside like Bob Gibson. I'm just checking. As, as you speak, I'm, I'm uh, Googling 12. Gibson's hit-by-pitch. <laughs> yep. Well, Gibson hit more than 12, but if you, if you, he was a starter, not a reliever. So in terms of number of innings, um, I, I bet Gibson has even fewer. But Gibson threw inside, and the reason to do that was you had to have good control because if, if you hit the guy, there's, there's going to be retaliation. You can't always hit them, but you can throw inside, make them back out, and then you throw the ball on the outside corner, and that's where you're going to live. That's how you're going to be able to uh, dominate batters. Well, for for uh, for hockey, there was a uh, this is from uh, Ross Bernstein's book, the the code about hockey. Um, there's rules for how to conduct ourselves and beyond the official rules, what the officials would enforce. It was a marvelous system based on honor and, in- and accountability. If you did something dishonorable or disrespectful, you're going to have to answer to that by fighting. The code went actually further than that. So um, there was a time when a, a, a player, Pat Quinn, leveled Bobby Orr. And Bobby Orr was a, a highly skilled um Scorer. His his job was to score. He wasn't no, a fighter. He, 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 he was a defender, but he, but he was an offensive. He was the guy who brought off. He was the first offensive defenseman. He was a superstar. He was he's one of the five and greatest was, hockey players of all time, and was a great passer. So he he had a lot of assists. Um. So Pat Quinn um hit Bobby Orr, and it was perfectly fair the way that he hit him. It was open ice. He saw him coming and didn't use his stick. It was a perfectly fair check. And when the other team decided that they would fight Quinn, Quinn's own team wouldn't defend him because he had violated the code. <laughs> so nobody else would stand up. So there, there, there's two things. If you violate the code, you're going to have to answer them for that yourself, and you're going to have to fight the other team's big guy. And a lot of times you're going to back down because you can't beat him, and that's humiliating. So that threat of humiliation is like the, the fly with the eyes on stalks it's embarrassing to walk away. I'm, I lost. I have to admit that I lost. We're substituting honor for violence. So I look forward and I say, if I, if I, if I check Bobby Orr, even if it's a clean check, the result is I'm going to have to fight a giant goon. I'm going to be humiliated. I don't want to do that. I'm not going to check Bobby Orr. <laughs> and so, the, but on, on the flip side, if the goon on the other team challenged me, and there, there was a story about Tom Chorsky, so a, a speedy winger who played in the NHL for 11 seasons in 1980 and 1990, and uh, Bernstein asked him, what was the, the most interesting fight? That the most, the, the, you probably were in a lot of fights during your career. Uh, which one was the most memorable? And uh, Bernstein thought there would be some you know, really violent one. And what Tom, did was told, Tom Chorsky did was tell a story on himself. And the story was, I didn't understand the code. So the, the other team, there was, he had a big guy who, I mean, he hit me with his stick a couple times. The referee didn't call it. He tripped me. The referee didn't call it. I got tired of it, and I just decided I would stand up for myself. Now, everybody on Tom's team saw this, and it would have been taken care of under the code. But Torsky decided that he was going to fight the goon himself. And he, he didn't win, but he did okay. He showed up, and he thought the other guys on his team would congratulate him. Afterwards, the, his team's goon took him aside, and I should say enforcer, uh, took him aside and said, look, don't ever do that again. And there's several reasons why. One is, you're embarrassing me. 
That's my job. Yeah, broke, I can't it's pull goals. He, he, yeah, he broke the work rules. <laughs> well, the, 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 I, I can't score goals. I can't really pass. In fact, I can't really skate. And this is my job. Second, you're going to get hurt because you can't really fight like that. And third, if, if you do get hurt, we're going to lose someone important, and people are going to say, hey, he's a hothead. We're going to send some guy who's worthless, some fat goon out there, who's going to challenge you, and they can get you out of the game. Both, both sides are going to get five for fighting, or maybe a, a, a major disqualification for fighting, because it's going to look like you started the fight. You know, I, he chipped away with his stick a few times. It didn't get called. It's going to look like you started the fight. You may get a game disqualification. So for these three reasons, please don't do that again. And other guys afterwards came up to him after the, after the game and said, don't do that. You, 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 we, we have to let us stand up for you. Don't do that. So what was interesting, I thought, is that it comes down to other people's assessment of the correctness of your actions and it might not be the way that you expect, because in one case, a perfectly clean legal check of the other team's best player was not defended by the guys on his team. And in fact, it was embarrassing and a violation of the code. And in the other, standing up and actually fighting, which I think most people would say, yeah, that's what hockey players do. They have to be tough like that. Well, that was a violation of the code. It embarrassed his team, and they, they didn't want him to act that way. Yeah, I want to. I want to apply this to um, this idea of the code to something we've. I think we've talked about this before, but I want to bring it up again in this context, which is cheating. And it, I, I, we'll stay away from steroids. We've talked about that before, but I want to talk about players who break the rules. Um, and what I find interesting is that certain forms of cheating are considered acceptable, but other forms of cheating are not. And so, for example. Uh, and again, I think we've mentioned this. If you're on second base after hitting a double, you are allowed to try to steal the signs of the catcher and relay them to the batter. There's no rule against it. It's not. There's no formal rule against it, and there's. It's part of the code that you're okay. You're allowed to do that. The catcher knows yeah. that, so the catcher changes the signs as to what kind of pitch the pitcher is going to throw when there's a runner on second base. But if yeah. the batter peeks yeah. back and tries to steal the signs. He gets thrown at and he'll get hit. Similarly, a player who, say, comes off second base early on a double play, uh, there, there are a bunch of things that are – if you get away with them, the umpire doesn't see it, it's it's OK. But the things that are not OK – so a few years ago, uh, Alexander, Alex Rodriguez, A-Rod, when a player was brought to – I think this is what it happened. It's, it's comical because it's like a seventh – a third grade baseball play. Player was about to catch a pop pop up, and I think he yelled, "I've got it," or something similar to distract the player as he was running between second and third. That's not okay. You're not allowed to do that. That's quote against the rules. And it fascinates me that certain things are allowed in the code and certain things are not. But they're all kind of unsporting or cheating, depending on, on how you look at it. And yet some are okay and some are not. Maybe before we go on to the broader applications, you want to give an example of equipment and how it interacts with the. Uh, the uh, the formal and informal rules. Well, um, one of the sports where fighting is not formally allowed, but does sometimes happen, is rugby. And I actually played rugby when I was in college, which may explain a great deal. Yeah, it says it all. Probably. I, I I was a post, which meant I spent most of my time with my arm around the hooker, and of course, the hooker. I should explain is uh, the the guy who has his arms around the two posts, and so his, his face is just exposed. He can't defend himself, so they, they tend to have broken noses. Posts have no ears because they, they rub, they rub your ears all bloody. But the, the hooker takes his foot and is trying to pull and poke the ball back inside the scrum so that one of the halves behind him, one of the uh, locks behind him, can uh, grab the ball and then they can start uh, uh, running. Well, rugby had moved towards more and more padding. They were allowing some shoulder pads and some helmets. Rugby outlawed those things because there were too many injuries. So getting rid of helmets and getting rid of shoulder pads sharply reduced the number of injuries that rugby was suffering. It's the Peltzman effect. 
it is the but it also it reduced the number of fights because the violence was the violence was partly in response to the fact that people were being speared with so the, the, there were the, there were two things one is there were more injuries and the other is there were more and more rugby fights because that was the only way you could defend yourself against someone who used the fact that he his head was protected to make what wasn't really a clean hit which was an injuring hit so they they could have gone two ways they could have allowed more fights to reduce the amount of violence or they could use an equipment change to reduce the amount of violence and they decided to go with the equipment change well i think it's just fascinating that they 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 actually outlawed the thing that in um, american football um i think a lot of people do blame for injuries but we don't we don't have fights there and the the reason is that in america the it it happens some there are fights but they're dreadful very rare very rare well and the the you there's, really can hurt somebody. There's dirty play in the line yeah. where you can't see what's going on. And, and, and going back to earlier points about cheating and monitoring, linemen in football who, who wrestle and they do everything except bite each other. But there are the occasional yeah. ones who actually do bite uh, when they yeah. can. And those people are known and they have a, quote, bad reputation. They're considered yeah. uh, dirty players. But the there is not the same opprobrium. Uh, that comes to being a dirty player that there is in uh, hockey or baseball. You can you can be a dirty player in hockey, but it has to be within a particular context. Some of the the, the guys that were known enforcers, there were there were guys that have more than three thousand penalty minutes over the course of their career, which it, it is just an astonishing number. Um, you think there could, had, you'd think there'd be something like the intentional walk. You, you think you could say, yeah. I'm going to take a penalty. Let me just smack this guy, and I'll just go right over the box. <laughs> well, it, it's interesting that uh, sometimes when the the two teams know that two, t- two guys are going to fight, they'll send them out maybe for a face-off, or they'll be beside each other. And you, you see them talk, and one guy will say something, the other guy will nod, and then they'll just both drop their gloves. There's no additional provocation. Let's just start it's, fighting. It, well, there has been an offense. You have to pay. Are you ready? And so that's the context in which dirty play might take place in hockey because the goon goes up to the guy that says, uh, you stand accused of having violated the code. How do you plead? And you're not allowed to plead not guilty. <laughs> so it, it's, a, it's a judicial process. Whereas in, in football, it's really extracurricular. That sort of thing is not punished as much. And, and the, why so is the, that? I think that's an I've, interesting question. Well, my theory. Well, go ahead. I like. Go ahead. I have a, I have a thought. Well, I I think it's the the fact that we're so used to having equipment and have it be a thuggish game that the 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 the, the way that football evolved was different from hockey. The it, it's it's a little bit harder to get injured, and the people who get injured are replaceable. So if I hit if I hit a quarterback in a dirty way, that's no good. But if I abuse another lineman, it's okay. Well, yeah, I think there's uh, there's a huge difference in in how the type of players that are involved and how it's viewed and how it's enforced and how it's refereed. Uh, especially after Tom Brady got hurt, uh, you know they've really changed the they've really tried to protect the quarterback and but they don't protect the lineman at all. But my view nope. is my view is and again that's sort of a that's a code thing in and of itself. It's sort of like we're real football players. It's like they're not gonna. They'd be offended. A lot of them are offended that that there's certain rules to make the sport less violent. But yeah. for me, I think the I think it's just a physical issue. I think the given the amount of equipment that people have on, it's hard to hurt somebody. And uh, unless yeah. the way they get hurt is you run at high speed and catch someone unsuspecting and and take them take their feet out from under them and crush their knee or bend their knee back their leg the wrong way. That's how people get hurt in football. It's very. Um, it's, there's nothing equivalent to a stick or a punch that could – I mean you, you really have trouble hurting a football player if you're standing next to him and, and, and you could do whatever you wanted. Yeah. They're pretty well covered. You'd have to snap they a finger. Are, <laughs> well, what, what, what has become difficult about football is that it's clear that over the course of a career, a helmet doesn't in fact protect you. And by the time you're 40, you have brain damage. And you live to maybe 50 or 55. And so players, not surprisingly, are saying we have to make some kind of change. It's not clear what the form of the change would be. If you look at the implementation of equipment changes, 
in hockey, baseball, and football, there were strong norms of, of the the I think the last guy who wore the helmet rule in hockey was implemented I think in 1979 and it was grandfather it was grandfather the last guy who didn't wear a helmet and it was a big mark of pride to him where you'd think it would be <laughs> crazy hey grandpa why, why aren't you why aren't you wearing a helmet some of the guys who started wearing helmets in hockey it was because they'd had their skull fractured enough that they had steel plates and if they got hit there again, it would almost certainly kill them. So a few guys started wearing helmets in the 20s and 30s. And so that was okay. But the, the, the last guy was McTavish in, I think, 1997. Maybe I, I, I may have that wrong. But it was, it was, very, it was, it was very late. And it, his name was McTavish, was the, the last of the hockey players who was not obliged to wear a helmet by rule because it was grandfathered in. Baseball by 1970, it was mandatory. So it was a little bit earlier. Um, but the, the form of the helmet that they used was different. And now it's still um, hockey. There's a, an argument about visors. Um, and uh, Sidney Crosby was just injured by getting a, the, the Pittsburgh Penguins star was just injured by taking a puck to the face because he wasn't wearing a visor. So why would you resist these um, uh, equipment changes and it, it's interesting that there is this this mission, there is a norm of machismo where you know you're you're too tough to do it so it, it part of the code is i have enough character that i really care about this game and i don't want it to change and so i oppose equipment change rules equipment rules changes just seems by the way i as an aside we're not going to talk about this but your story about hockey and and the people with the plates um I immediately thought of John Olerud, which I immediately thought of Ricky Henderson, and I just Googled that. And it turns out that's an apocryphal story. But anybody who wants to find out about it, I can Google it. I'll put a link up to it. And I know you know what I'm talking about. Yeah. Um, it seems to me football – we've talked about this before, but football needs to get rid of the helmet or something similar. They need to go in the unintuitive direction of less protection, which will make players less comfortable running at full speed and using their head as a weapon. Well, the if you look at rugby, it looks – far more dangerous and in right. fact the way well the, the way rugby people describe it and of course this is self-serving is that it's a ruffians game played by gentlemen and then football is a gentleman's game played by ruffians because the it's the equipment that turns you into the behavior so if, if i'm a if i'm playing rugby i'm actually obliged to be behave in a slightly more gentlemanly way because i'm exposed whereas if i'm a football player I'm I'm not, and so I can be a ruffian. I can be as thuggish as I want because I'm protected. So it isn't intuitive, but I I do think that people in in the the decision by uh, rugby to eliminate the equipment that protected people was clearly partly at least the, the Peltzman effect. And if those of you don't remember the Peltzman effect from previous podcasts, the Peltzman effect is that when you it's really an example of what's sometimes called moral hazard, that when you make something safer, you encourage people to take more risk because they're protected. And then the net – the full effect on risk is ambiguous. If they take enough risk, you could actually make the, the activity more dangerous than when you than when you started. So his example was seatbelts. Seatbelts are – make you less likely to be harmed in an accident. But if you know that or if you subconsciously know it, you will drive more recklessly – and so his prediction was that that increased the number of accidents. So when whether that increased the number of injuries, he found actually it was fairly offsetting, but more pedestrians got killed because they're walking around. Yep. Um, and we did a podcast podcast on a long time ago, which but we'll put a link up to it. But let's move on. Let's um, let's talk about some of the broader issues here related to Coase and Hayek that you wanted to get to. Well, we hadn't talked yet about Coase, and the important thing about the kind of Coasean part of this is that the Coase theorem, which actually is not due to Coase himself, but a paper by Stigler in 19, George Stigler in 1974, basically says that parties that are bargaining privately are going to find the solution that maximizes joint value if transactions costs are not too high. And so if you add 
this to the sort of Hayekian repeated play situation where over time we come up with some rules and those those don't work, we try something else. So basically we're able to search pretty broadly over the, the set of rules that might be implemented. The Kosian insight is that whatever system is being used in the sort of common law or Hayekian law sense is likely to produce efficient outcomes. And so the idea that you know we, we look at this and we say it doesn't work and we're going to make rule changes is probably a mistake. So the, what, what I think is interesting, and this is so obviously true in hockey in ways that I had not understood until I was reading to prepare for this podcast, and particularly the, the Ross Bernstein book, The Code, um, the set of rules that you have in hockey actually reduce violence substantially make it much less likely that the star players who really produce value for the team and for the fans are going to be hurt and increase sort of speed up play because you don't have to call so many penalties. The, the, you're going to take care of this privately because an alternative is in hockey, one of the problems is it's so fast you can't really see. What we could do is add two more referees. So we, we could have more formal enforcement. So a, a non-Kosian solution is let's not let – people aren't going to bargain. We're going to add more formal enforcement, more police, more judges, and we're going to make these decisions. Well, already sometimes the referees get hit. They're in the way. You're going to call more penalties. You're going to slow play down. This way, the guys on the bench look. They see that an infraction has taken place. They file it away. They're going to get you later. Or in equilibrium, if my goon, the interesting thing is that a hockey goon who's really an excellent enforcer may not have to fight very much because everyone understands that he only fights in the situation where it's deserved, and that means I'm going to avoid committing the infraction in the first place. And so it, it's a much smoother, it actually reduces transactions costs. The, this system not only gives you more efficient outcomes, but it reduces transactions cost in the sense of you don't have to have the intervention of the authorities to slow down the game. You have to go to the, to the uh, penalty box. It improves the game dramatically, and it's just because the players themselves see themselves as benefiting from following the code. But the code has much larger effects of improving the, the game and increasing the value. What's interesting, of course, again, as we mentioned before, is that the code – no one's um, – there's no committee. It's all individual no. decision-making and yet the code emerges. I doubt if people understand it. I think that the people who are young people say, I don't, I don't want to – this is dumb. I don't want to do this. It's unlikely that most players understand the full implications. They just know that if they violate the code, their teammates will think less of them. And in that kind of sport, the respect of your teammates is important for your own safety. Yeah, and I and that's very uh, Hayekian, of course, that that we don't understand that many of the traditions and norms that come down to us, we don't understand uh, why they're important. And you know, tradition, by definition, says, "Well, just do it anyway." Uh, yeah, of course, as as we've often pointed out in having these kind of discussions, there are a lot of traditions that come down that are awful, uh, yeah. that oppress people, uh, discriminate, uh, and hurt people. But uh, it's interesting; these, the ones that we're noting, are the good ones, the ones that emerge to uh, create value and well some of them may not some of them like the macho rule about no helmets is a sort of prisoner's dilemma where if everybody would do it and that's why having it voluntary didn't work some teams actually tried to get there after the there was a famous incident in 1933 where a guy named um eddie shore um was confused he got hit he he, he had a concussion he went after another player and almost killed him. And the it was clearly a dirty play, but he was he was trying to retaliate for what he thought was a dirty play. He actually wore a helmet after that because he was afraid of retaliation and he was afraid that um, of, of being re-injured after having injured his his brain. But teams would try to get their players to wear a helmet, and since it wasn't required, they wouldn't do it. So finally, what you might call state intervention was required to get people to wear helmets, which was probably an improvement. In hockey, the danger is mostly they don't, they don't tackle, so they don't spear with their head because the stick is more than dangerous enough. What the helmet does is protect you when you fall on the ice. 
And so in, in, in hockey, clearly they should have worn helmets, but there was a tr- tradition of not wearing helmets that did require state intervention. So even there, the code may nice. sometimes be good, sometimes be bad. I don't know how you tell. And I think the answer is think long and hard before intervening and say, what's going to be the unintended consequences of this? And remember that there's equipment changes, formal rules, and informal rules that all interact in really complicated ways. Well, I think it also depends on how competitive the environment is for the activity we're talking about. Um, norms change, I think, under pressure from other systems, other competitors, um, and you can't, uh, you can't, as we said, you can't just change them. You can't decree that this will no longer be honorable or this will be honorable. Uh, I think it's a mixed question about helmets and hockey. Uh, when there were not helmets, the other aspect, of course, is that the players had more visibility, literally. Yeah. Play, the, yeah. the fans enjoyed the game more, I think, because they saw the players. And in fact, yeah. one of the challenges of football is that the players are all kind of covered up. Um, but you see them in – well, you, it's, it still works pretty well. The, the other point I want to make, I just have to mention this because it's just kind of a pet peeve of mine. You know, Coase himself did not like – does not like – he did not like when we talked about it on the podcast uh, a little while back. He doesn't like that summary description of his paper, yeah. 1960 paper. Uh, in his view, the essence of the paper is because transactions are, costs are large, you have to be careful where you assign property rights or liability. And you sort of – you gave it the reverse way. You said as long as they're not too big, everything works out pretty well. Certainly he was aware of that. Sometimes it gets parodied into the Coast theorem is or the – Coase's point was, well, you don't have to do anything because it'll all work itself out. And obviously, sometimes it does and sometimes it doesn't. And sometimes you need formal rules. Sometimes you need legislation to to change those incentives. Uh, But but a lot of the time, things do emerge that that make things better without that. And they have their own uh, advantages and sometimes disadvantages. And different schemes have different amounts of transactions cost associated with them. And you need to recognize that if you can find a way to reduce transactions costs through policy, that makes bargaining solutions more feasible. And I actually think that's what the code does in hockey is reduces transactions cost of what is in effect private bargaining. Which would be obviously very costly. Do you want to say anything else about Hayek? I just alluded to the fact that you know these codes emerge uh, and that often things that seem irrational to us uh, because they've stood the test of time should be respected – um, that's very a very Hayekian point, uh, and and the codes in these sports, and certainly much more broadly, the codes in society, the things that are considered quote quote good manners, uh, what Adam Smith would call propriety, what is appropriate to do, what is proper, uh, those things they change in recent years quite dr- dramatically, but but for much of quote civilized history, there were certain rules that were pretty unchanging. And many of them still persist about politeness, gratitude, honor, dignity, etc. Do you want to add anything to that? Yeah, what I think is interesting is that Hayek also emphasized the particular conditions of time and place, the the, the local information that might change – you you might see different norms in different settings. And so it's not surprising that these sports have such different codes – because the particular conditions and circumstances of time and place mean that the efficient solutions are going to be quite different. And so the I guess I, I tend to have a Darwinian kind of view of this where did, you go he did to too. different He did too. Yeah. yeah absolutely. You you go to a different you go to different environments and you look and you don't say, well, they should all be the same. You say, isn't it interesting that they're different? Let's try to figure out why. Because the the reasons that they're different probably tell us something about the importance of norms and institutions that you couldn't get just by looking at a single case. That is, you couldn't generalize from hockey and say that's the way it would be in tennis. The, the conditions of time and place are different. And I think that's the, the, one of the fundamental insights that Hayek had is that not only are things complicated, but they're different in ways that you might not expect if you just looked at a single case and tried to say, well, what's efficient? Yeah, that's absolutely right. And, that, and it's Maybe that explains why some of the norms that were – and I'm interested in things like um, why it's okay to, to call someone by their first name. So especially people who in the past, a server in a restaurant, suddenly I'm on an intimate relationship with the server. Um, a child with a friend of his parents is, is calls that often person by their first name. 
these would have been this would have been unheard of 40, 50, 60 years ago. And now it's like no big deal. So those things, yeah. those habits have changed. Others have not. But I wonder I always like to think about why have some of these patterns why have they changed? Yeah. Right. And the the idea that I think a lot of us have of not not only questioning why has it changed, but maybe it shouldn't, is a, a sort of interesting notion that Hayek used to distinguish between himself and conservatism. Conservatives always say, we need to stand athwart history and shout stop. We need right. to prevent these changes. Tradition. Hayek said, sometimes change is good, and it may be hard to figure that out, but the, the sort of dynamic changes, uh, thing, things that we get from entrepreneurship, responses to, to relative prices, those are things you have to allow. It, it's hard. It, it, that means that I look at changes, it's going to be very difficult to me to, for me to figure out which ones are goods and which ones are bad, because we, we all agree, I think, we don't fully understand the relationship between institutions and outcomes. My guest today has been Michael Munger. Mike, thanks for being part of Econ Talk. Thanks for talking. This is Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. For more Econ Talk, go to econtalk.org, where you can also comment on today's podcast and find links and readings related to today's conversation. The sound engineer for Econ Talk is Rich Goyette. I'm your host, Russ Roberts. Thanks for listening. Talk to you on Monday. <laughs>